There seems to be a double standard in Washington when it comes to talking to Russians. Democrats want to destroy Attorney General Jeff Sessions because he forgot he had had a couple of meetings with the Russian ambassador. But many Democrats have forgotten their meetings with the Russian ambassador as well. Attempts to reach the ambassador for comment were fielded by his wife, who said she had never met him. So he may just be a forgettable sort of person. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer claimed there was something sinister about Republican meetings with Russian officials. But then photographs emerged showing Schumer sharing Krispy Kreme donuts with Russian President Vladimir Putin. When Schumer was asked about the photographs, he burst into tears and said that the Statue of Liberty was crying because she loved Krispy Kremes so very much. Schumer is demanding that a special prosecutor be appointed to investigate any slanders against Krispy Kremes. He says the entire Trump administration should resign to protect Krispy Kreme's reputation for deliciousness. Senator Democrat Senator Claire McCaskill scoffed at Jeff Sessions for saying he had met with the Russian ambassador because of his work on the Senate Armed Services Committee. But tweets later revealed that she had met with the Russian ambassador because of her work on the Senate Armed Services Committee. McCaskill later clarified that unlike Sessions, who said he had forgotten those meetings, she had forgotten those meetings. So it was completely different. Barack Obama, whose Justice Department seems to have been investigating Trump's ties with the Russians, was also shown to have ties with the Russians. But Obama's spokesman said these were just official meetings during which the president promised Vladimir Putin he would weaken America's missile defenses after his last election when he would no longer have to lie to the American public. The spokesman said Obama later proved his dedication to defending America against the Russians by gutting our military and facilitating Iran's acquisition of nuclear weapons. So that's okay then. Other Democrats who said they hadn't met with the Russians include House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who said she couldn't remember any meetings with the Russians or where she'd parked her car or what her name was or how all these dead bodies had gotten into her apartment. There was also Senator Dianne Feinstein, who said she had never met with the Russians, but now she admits she had had a few meetings with Russians, but only to discuss cooking recipes and to exchange photographs of the grandchildren and American nuclear installations. President Donald Trump, meanwhile, countered charges that his administration had colluded with the Russians during the last election by making the outlandish claim that the Democrats had bugged the phones at Trump Tower. Trump's absurd claim was made during a private phone conversation with his wife, Melania, and later released by sources within the FBI. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. <laughs> Not the whole thing, though, is it? All right, it's mailbag day. Yeah, 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 yeah. All your questions answered. Uh, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, you got to come over to thedailywire.com and listen to mailbag day. You could watch if you were such a cheap uh, so-and-so and you would subscribe for a lousy eight bucks a month. And then you would get to be in next week's mailbag, which is a little uncomfortable. But while you're there, you get to ask your questions. We answer them. Your life has changed. Ipso facto, whatever. I don't know what that means, but I just... Michael Knowles' book. 
<laughs> Our cultural correspondent, Nobel Prize winning cultural correspondent Michael Knowles, his reasons to vote for Democrats, a completely blank book, is now number six on the Amazon bestseller list. So Michael Knowles is now not just a Nobel Prize winner, not just a multi-Oscar winner and a Pulitzer Prize winner. He is now a troll god. I would say <laughs> Knowles has changed. I, clearly, Shapiro and I are doing this whole book thing wrong by putting words in them. <laughs> I think Knowles has captured the spirit of the age <laughs> inside the covers of this book. Get your copy now while uh, they're empty. Otherwise, somebody might put words in them and then they'll be... For those of you who like words, um, <laughs> I have a short <laughs> Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, the uh, world's leading mystery magazine, which it is. Uh, the new edition has a short story by me called All Our Yesterdays, and you can get that for, I think, three bucks on Amazon. You can get that copy. It is the March-April 2017 edition, but it does have words in it, so it's a little tougher than uh, Knowles's, <laughs> Knowles's book. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable that he did that. Good on him. That's, like, like, the man is a troll. And now we do we have to respect him? No. That, never mind. That's, I, sorry. That thought went fleeted through my head for a minute, but that's ridiculous. All right, so what's going on? I, I actually do want to talk about double standards. I just have to mention this this WikiLeaks thing that came out yesterday, this incredible blast of information. So obviously we have a spy or of some sort or traitor in our intelligence operations who released to WikiLeaks all this material about the way the our intelligence guys gather information. And it turns out they can take over the Internet of Things, right? They can take your iPad and watch you. They can watch you through your Apple TV. They can listen to you on your iPhone. Hopefully, they're only doing this to the bad guys, but they can do it to anybody. And not only that, they can infiltrate your computer and make it seem as if the Russians had done it. So now we don't know who hacked. We don't know who fished. Actually, nobody hacked the DNC. You know, they fished the DNC. They got. They caught uh, John Podesta on a fishing expedition. He sent them his email address, and that, I think, and that's how they got into him. But now we don't even know if it's the Russians anymore. So pretty soon they're going to be accusing Donald Trump of consorting with Americans. You know, that's going to be the new thing on CNN. CNN. How how many Americans? did you talk to? And did you talk to the American ambassador? Well, I'm president of the United States. That's no excuse. Anyway, so this is, everything is getting much, much more complicated. But I want to talk about, I really do want to talk about this whole double standards thing, because this is, this week has just brought this to a fore. When we talk about fake news, this is what it means. It doesn't mean this story is untrue or that story is untrue. It is the double standard by which things are treated. So for instance, when the guy from Time, I think it was, said the Martin Luther King bust had been taken out of the Oval office. Oops, no, somebody was just standing in front of it. You know, Chuck Todd and all these journalists just shrugged that off as if that were an incredibly incendiary thing to say that you would never have said about a Democrat in office. So now we have this thing, Trump, you know, they they hammer Trump with all this empty stuff about the Russians. They have, it's all smoke, no fire. And people keep saying it's a lot of smoke. I'm I'm not sure there's that much smoke. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what they've got, but they don't have anything sub- substantive. And Trump shoots back this thing that I was bugged. Obama bugged me in Trump Tower. And listen to Scary Spicer, uh, the uh, president's spokesman, get hit by CNN and ABC News. He's giving a press conference on the new health care bill, and they come out with this thing on the bugging. The president made a very serious allegation over the weekend, and, and I think we would all be remiss if we went through this briefing and not try to get you on camera to, to at least offer us some evidence. Where is the evidence? Where is the proof that President Obama bugged President Trump? 
Well, I, I answered this question yesterday on camera on your air. So just yeah. so we're clear, uh, I know this is now will be twice, uh, but I think I've made it clear but, yesterday. I mean, but since yesterday, since yesterday, nothing is there has any changed. New proof? No, no it's not a question of it's not a question of new proof or less proof or whatever. It's the answer is the same, and I think that which is that I think the, that there is a concern about what happened in the 2016 election. The House and Senate Intelligence Committee have the staff and the capabilities uh, and the processes in place to look at this in a way that's objective, and that's where it should be done. And frankly, if you've seen the response from, especially on the on the House side, but as well as the Senate, they were they welcome this and so let's let the Senate do their job and the House excuse me intelligence committees and then report back to the American people yeah. will the president withdraw the accusation does he have any, any why would he withdraw it until it's I mean in, until it's adjudicated that's what we're asking is for them to look at this and see if there is no, is, it, him no about not, raising this accusation. absolutely not so so he's getting the third degree basically over this thing but who is giving the Schumer the third degree over his I mean, you know Schumer can go on and accuse Trump especially accused Jeff Sessions of essentially being a Russian spy and nothing. Nobody peppers him with questions like that. Now here, and some of this is coming from Andrew McCarthy at National Review. Terrific. Uh, he's obviously a former federal prosecutor. Uh, he's going to be on the show next week. And he's the guy who put the blind chic away. But he's now become this absolutely terrific writer for National Review. And he pointed this out. Here's a New York Times story from January 18th. American law enforcement and intelligence agencies are examining intercepted communications and financial transactions as part of a broad investigation into possible links between Russian officials and associates of President-elect Donald J. Trump, including his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, current and former senior American officials said. So this was put out as a way of branding Trump. This story was the New York Times, a former newspaper, branding Trump by saying, ooh, they're investigating him for communications with the Russians. American law enforcement and intelligent agencies are examining intercepted communications. And so they're saying he was bugged. They're saying he was bugged. Now, if, if he wasn't bugged, you know, then there's no Russian story, right? I mean, their idea is there's a Russian story because the feds were investigating him. So if he wasn't bugged, there's no Russian stories. If he was bugged, they haven't come up with anything. So why was he bugged? And, and listen to, listen to uh, Josh Ernst. Remember uh, the last president in his name? What was his name? Uh, oh, I can't remember. He sounded like a terrorist. I can't remember. But Obama's uh, former press guy, Josh Ernst, talking to Martha Raddatz, right? And, and listen, she actually, she who is a partisan reporter on the left, she actually goes after him to try and get a denial out of him. Listen to the, him weasel out of it. President Obama's former speechwriter, John Favreau, your former colleague, mm -hmm. tweeted, I'd be careful about reporting that Obama said there was no wiretapping. Statement just said that neither he nor the White House ordered it. Can you categorically deny that the Obama Justice Department <laughs> did not seek and obtain a, fi a FISA court order? What I can categorically deny, Martha, is that the White House was at all involved in directing or interfering or influencing an FBI investigation. That, of that's any not sort. what I'm asking. What I'm asking. Well, is, can you deny that the Obama Justice Department did not seek and obtain a FISA court-ordered wiretap of the Trump campaign? It was a cardinal rule. Here, here's, what, here's the simple answer to that question is, Martha. I don't know. And it's not because I'm no longer in government. The fact is, even when I was in government, 
I was not in a position of being regularly briefed on an FBI criminal or counterintelligence investigation. The White House, no one at the White House, including the president of the United States, should be in a position in which they're trying to influence or dictate how that investigation is being conducted. Do you know whether the president was ever given information about surveillance at Trump Tower? What I can tell you, well, first of all, I'm not aware of all of the details of how the president was briefed by the FBI. But what I can tell you is the president was not giving marching orders to the FBI about how to conduct their investigations. He was not asking for regular updates on FBI investigations. And let me just stipulate one more time. You have to ask the FBI whether there actually is an investigation into uh, Mr. Trump. That's such weasel stuff, because, again, as I said before, this is the meddlesome priest rule. You know, the president doesn't have to call up the FBI and say investigate Trump. He just has to let it be known that that would be a good thing or have some of his people let it be known. And off they go. And he knows. Look, you know, Loretta Lynch was one of the most blandly sinister uh, public officials we ever had. Nothing that went on in that in her Justice Department was unpolitical. Eric Holder, same thing. It was all political. It was an absolute scandal the way the Obama Justice Department was run. And if they were bugging Trump Tower, Obama knew. If they were bugging, you know, that is almost guaranteed. And I'm not saying he ordered it. He didn't have to order it. So all, all I'm talking about is the difference in the way these stories are covered. CNN is basically putting up headlines that says that Trump falsely claims Obama bugged him or Trump you know, unsubstantiated claims, but never Schumer's unsubstantiated claims or Pelosi's unsubstantiated claims about Jeff Sessions or uh, or Obama or the contacts with the Russians. Absolute trash. So it's just I'm just talking about the double standard. So now we've got this health bill come out. And, you know, this health bill, I'm of two minds about it. You, you know, it's obviously got a lot of problems. It is a little bit of Obamacare light. I, I'm not um, I, I wonder if maybe I, th- I think that Trump has to have a law. They have to have pass something out of that starts with this law. And I'm hoping it'll be changed. Both Paul Ryan and Tom Price, the health guy, are saying there's a three-pronged process by which we're going to get rid of Obamacare. This is the first prong. I think, you know, they're going to have to do something, and I hope they do. But it's got problems, so off it goes to be debated and all this stuff. But let's listen to the way Pelosi, Pelosi goes on and she just says, this is the worst bill ever. There's nothing good about it. She said, what what does she say? Uh, Play uh, play number four. You can hear what she says. Just when you think you've seen it all, the Republicans go to a more extreme place. Uh, This will make millions of people. It's a question of 10, 15, 20 million people off uh, of having health insurance. It will be the biggest transfer of wealth from low and middle income people to wealthy people in our country. You don't think of it that way. That's why we say to them, show us the numbers. Show us the numbers about what the impact is personally on people. Show us the numbers as to how many people will be thrown off. It is real. It couldn't be worse. If she doesn't know the numbers, how does she know it's going to be the biggest transfer of wealth? If she doesn't know the number, I mean, this is what I mean. This is like logic on the face of it. If she doesn't know the numbers, how does she know it couldn't be worse or whether it's great? We, you know, she, she has no idea. She doesn't know yet, but she just goes out and says it. But here's the thing that really gets me. They ask her about Obamacare. Okay, and here's what she says. This is number five. Before, you have to take it back to before, before we had the Affordable Care Act, which is what I call it, and with all the respect in the world for the president, uh, before uh, premiums were soaring. 
if you could even get insurance, and if you had a pre-existing condition, you couldn't. The Affordable Care Act, in some instances, there will be some increases, not across the board, but in some instances there will be increases, but nothing to compare what it would have been without the Affordable Care Act. And the coverage is far superior, all of the benefits. So the goal of the Affordable Care Act was to do three things, uh, to improve benefits, to expand coverage as to who is included, and to lower cost. It has succeeded in every one of those things. Every word of that is untrue, and those guys, the reporters, just sit there and listen to it. The Affordable Care Act is collapsing. And when the Republicans come out and say the Affordable Care Act is collapsing, they are only speaking the truth as the as as if you said the sky were blue, okay? Why is she, you know, she sits there without challenging it. No Republican making outlandish statements like that would be unchallenged, would go unchallenged, and they just sit there nodding. Hey, I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube, but but the mailbag is coming. All your problems will be solved. So come on over to thedailywire.com and listen and subscribe. Okay, we're talking about double standards, right? So this is, I'm just giving the examples of why why the news is fake per se, okay? It's not about each story, and it's not about whether this story is true or that story is true, but why the news is all fake because Democrats are covering Democrat news in a Democrat way for a Democrat audience. That is what our mainstream media are that is that are what they are as it were. Um, always i always hate we, we should just declare media a, a single noun you know i think we should get rid of the idea that it's a plural noun okay so so we've got this health bill whatever you know ryan said this uh, himself he says we're we're putting it out of uh out of its misery, or is an act of mercy, and, and that is just true. People, insurers are leaving the plan. It's it's no longer sustainable. Prices are going up. Choices are going down. The thing is falling apart. It's going to vanish without a trace if they don't. If the Republicans don't do something because of Barack Obama, because he they created this. Nancy Pelosi, who ju- you just saw lying on TV, Nancy Pelosi created this bill, helped create this bill to make it so it would collapse, and President Hillary Clinton would give us single-payer government health care and things somehow, you know, boing, things didn't work out quite the way she planned. All right, so this is just just the way people are covered. I have to talk, in, in keeping with this subject, I have to talk about Ben Carson. Ben Carson was giving a speech, right? He's now the uh, HUD director, and he's giving a speech, and he made this comment about slaves coming over to America. There were other immigrants who came here in the bottom of slave ships, worked even longer, even harder for less. But they too had a dream that one day their sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, great-grandsons, great-granddaughters might pursue prosperity and happiness in this land. Okay, so he called slaves immigrants. He said they came over unwillingly, but they were call, he called them immigrants, but he said they too had a dream that they might succeed in this land. The twi- Twitter goes nuts. Uh, Chelsea Clinton tweets, this can't be real. Slaves were not and are not immigrants. Okay, this is Chelsea Clinton. Samuel Jackson, now spokesman for that credit card company, right? <laughs> he says, Samuel Jackson says, 
Okay, Ben Carson, I can't. Immigrants in the bottom of slave ships, mother, please. And then has a hashtag that I won't repeat on the air, basically calling him an Uncle Tom, okay? The New York Times has an op-ed today essentially calling Ben Carson a fool for saying this and what a, what a clown he is. Here's Barack Obama a couple of years ago. His life in America was not always easy. It wasn't always easy for new immigrants. Certainly it wasn't easy for those of African heritage who had not come here voluntarily and yet in their own way were immigrants themselves. There was discrimination and hardship and poverty. But like you, they no doubt found inspiration in all those who had come before them. And they were able to muster faith that here in America, they might build a better life. This is one of 11 times he called slaves immigrants. Barack Obama called slaves immigrants. His words are almost exactly, the sentiments are almost exactly the same. The next thing that's going to happen is they're going to accuse Ben Carson of plagiarism. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, you mother, you plagiarized our president. I mean... It's absurd. It is absurd. And this happens again and again. Here's one more. Just double standards, right? This this happened at the uh, uh, that White House press dinner. Congressman, Democrat congressman from Louisiana, Cedric Richmond, talking about Kellyanne Conway in that photograph that we've all been talking about, about her kneeling on the sofa in the Oval Office. Here's the joke. This is a place where they go to make their jokes. Here's the joke he made. And you even mentioned Kellyanne and the picture on the sofa but I really just want to know what was going on there because you know I won't tell anybody and you can just explain to me that that circumstance because she really looked kind of familiar uh, in that position there but don't answer and and I don't want you to refer back uh, to the 90s sexist anybody no yes i you know come on i mean come on you know it's like that she looked it's unbelievable this is can you imagine a republican congressman saying this about a democrat official i mean just that's all you got to do you got to play cheryl atkinson's uh replacement game you know replace replace the democrat with a republican replace the republican with a democrat and you will see the outrage here is a place here's an example where the double standard blew up in their faces, okay? This is, this is great, I love this. A professor of economics named Maria Guadalupe was watching the presidential debates last year and had a thought. What if Trump were a woman and Hillary were a man? How would that change people's perceptions of the exchanges in the debates? With the help of Joe Salvatore, a professor who specializes in something called ethnodrama, Guadalupe set up a recreation of sections of the original debates, a recreation, I'm sorry, of sections of the original debates using actors to play the roles of Trump, Clinton, and the moderator, but switched the genders, right? So Clinton, they studied they studied Clinton's moves and her tone of voice, and they studied Trump's, and the woman played Trump, and the man played Clinton, okay? And what they expected to find was that everybody would suddenly be outraged that a woman saying the things that Donald Trump said because everybody so uh, hates women. But instead, it blew up in their faces. Let's just take a look. This is the rehearsal. It's really kind of funny. This is the rehearsal. We are going to enforce the trade deals that we have, and we're going to hold people accountable. When I was Secretary of State, we actually increased American exports globally 30%. We increased them to China 
50%. So I know how to really work to get new jobs and to get exports that help to create more new jobs. But you haven't done it in 30 years, in 26 years. Well, I have been a senator, and I have been a secretary of state, and I have done one of the worst trade deals to ever happen to well, the manufacturing industry. Is you go to England, you go to Ohio, Pennsylvania, you go anywhere you want, Secretary Gordon, and you will see devastation where manufacturers down 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. And now you want to approve Trans-Pacific Partnership. You were totally in favor of it. Then you heard what I was saying, how bad it is, and you said, I can't win that debate. But you know that if you did win, you would approve that, and that would be almost as bad as NAFTA. Well, Nothing will ever talk NAFTA. That, that is just not accurate. <laughs> so, so these lefty professors and the lefty audience were all expecting to hate the woman because she was being aggressive and they thought that instead they really liked Donald Trump and there were people in the audience with their heads in their hands. There were people like, you know, having trouble breathing because they found that she was speaking directly, simple, straight, in a straightforward manner. They wanted to have a beer with her. They, she reminded them of their Jewish aunt who come and, comes and brings them chicken soup. You know, it was like they suddenly found that, their, that they were exactly wrong. The double standard was theirs. It wasn't ours. It was theirs. Really, really really interesting. The final thing I want to say about this before we get to the mailbag is that this double standard, the big double standard here is that there's some kind of um, chaos and destruction going on in the Oval Office. Joe Scarborough said the other day, this White House is going down. This is seven weeks in, seven weeks in of a non-politician, our first non-politician president, you know, trying to find his, his sea legs, basically. And Joe Scarborough and, and Mika Brzezinski, who's in tears half the time, saying, Rome is burning, Rome is burning, everything. You know, this, this hysteria where really the crisis is on the left. The chaos is on the left. I will give the last word to DNC Chair Tom Perez. Listen to him talking about what has happened to the Democratic Party. I understand that one of the basic pillars and adages of politics and of life is often, what have you done for me lately? What do you stand for today? I understand what you stood for yesterday, but what do you stand for today? And what do you stand for tomorrow? And I understand that not only did the Democratic Party not cross the finish line successfully in 2016, but when you look at the elections over the last eight years in states across this country, Democrats have lost over 900 seats. We had far more governors eight years ago who were Democrats than we do today. We had far more members of the United States Senate. We had 59 Democrats in the Senate in 2009. And now we have far less. So I understand that it's an important time. And I ran to be the chair of the Democratic National Committee because I understood that the Democratic Party has both a crisis of relevance and a crisis of confidence. That we have work to do. That the definition of insanity is to do the same old thing over and over again and think that this time you're going to be successful. That's the DNC chair, a crisis of relevance, not just a crisis of confidence, but a crisis of relevance. They definitely have it. You know, the job numbers came in or early job numbers, preliminary job numbers came in for February. It seems like really good jobs have started to come back instead of the service sector, low paying jobs that were buoying up the numbers for the Obama administration, while people who had really good engineering jobs were maybe getting a, a small part time job. And they were saying, well, he's employed again and all this stuff. It sounded like really good jobs were coming back if 
that's true, and we can't say yet that that is true, but if this Trump economy starts to turn around and really come roaring back, I mean, he's going to win. He's going to win states that we don't even have. It'll be like Obama talked about fifty-seven states. He's going to win fifty-seven states next time out. All right, the mailbag. (laughs) We only play that trying to kill people on the road at this point. All right, uh, from someone with my name, Drew. Andrew, I'm a big fan of the show. I've heard both you and Ben make several references to Game of Thrones, implying that you both watch it. How do you justify the abundant nudity and sex scenes, and how does this differ from pornography? If they're not different, is pornography and thus Game of Thrones justifiable or okay for Christian viewing? Thanks. Hmm. Okay, really good question. Excellent question, because there's a big fight about this. There's one guy, I can't remember, what's his name, Matt... uh, I can't remember. He's a Christian guy who just says, and no Christian should be watching this. And I want to be really careful because when I have talked about sex and Christianity on the show, there's always a problem. The problem is not with what I say. The problem is what I know people hear. And so I want to be very careful. Okay. So let me set up. I'm going to get get to the answer of this question, but I'm going to go the long way around. First of all, I want I want to make it clear that there is a difference between what might be good for you or bad for you, what might be right or wrong, and what I feel I have the right to judge, okay? So, for instance, I would happily engage with somebody in a conversation about whether gay marriage is good for society or not, you know? I would happily engage in that conversation. But what the guy next to me does at home with a willing adult partner is absolutely none of my business. I may have opinions about it, but I am not here to judge that, and by, and by not judging it, I not only follow what I think is scripture, I also have a happier life, which I think following scripture generally <laughs> provides, okay? I think that the, the judge not, lest you be judged, I do not know. I do not know, A, what the person next to me does in the privacy of his own home, and I do not know how it affects his relationship with God. That is what I do not know. He may be living at so so much higher a level than his internal desires. Uh, he may be doing so much better than the machine that he's inhabiting, this car that he's driving, uh, that he may actually be doing great great when I think, oh my, how can he do do such things? It's none of my business. So that is one question. The other question is, what does the, how does the gospel affect our relationship with sex? And not only do a lot of mainstream churches, but a lot of people desire to find rules for sex that apply to everyone, right? The rules for sex that apply to everyone. One of the things that this does is it gives you the power to judge other people as the Bible tells you not to do. To do okay, the the new covenant that Christ begins is a covenant in which the law of God is written on your heart and in your brain, and that means that it may look entirely different in some instances for you than it looks for me. You know that is not telling you to go go wild because you think it's great. It is telling you that when when you come to God through Christ, this is my own experience. It's not that sex becomes less important. It's that something else becomes more important. If there's no God, if you are just a piece of meat, sex is about as important as it gets. You know, that's about as important as it gets. But there's something I think that is more important. And that's something, this is from a guy named Drew. So I will say, there is a Drew that you were meant to be, that you know that you are not. You know this to be true. Every single person knows this to be true. We know there is someone we were made to be that we are not. And Christ through his actions and through his life and death and resurrection opens a door back to that person. And because you now have a purpose in life, which is getting back to that person that you were made to be, your life becomes joyful. When you are going in the right direction, when you know what your life is about, that makes your life joyful. Okay, so what does that have to do with sex? All right, let's say two people 
are on the road, traveling salesmen, whatever, man and a woman. They're completely unattached, have no wife, no husband. They meet on the road. They like each other. They, in a friendly way, decide to go to bed together and have sex. None of your business, right? None of my business. Nobody's business but theirs. They can do anything they want. Is that moving them back on the road to that person they're supposed to be? I don't know the answer. You don't know the answer. But they know the answer. Okay? They know the answer. Now, let's get back to Game of Thrones. I have a friend who is a Christian who has a pornography problem. He's very open about it. He says, I, you know, I've become addicted to it. I had to break the addiction, blah, blah, blah. He can't watch Game of Thrones. He cannot watch Game of Thrones because there's a lot of sex and nudity in it. And I'll get to the question of whether it's pornography because I don't think it is. But there's a lot of sex and, and nudity in it. And in the opening seasons of the show, when HBO was trying to draw you in, it was exploitative. There's no question. They threw it in. I think personally, I think most sex scenes and nude scenes in movies are exploitative. I mean, almost you can almost always do it better some other way. But it brings in the peep. It puts butts in the seats, as they say. And so they did it. And there it is. Okay, so that guy is doing the right thing. He is moving toward that self that he is supposed to be, and he knows it, and he does that in consultation with God and with the Gospels, I hope, and, and that helps him to know what he should do. I, my, my life is uh, one of the great consolations of life for me is the arts, especially the storytelling arts. The arts are a way that I get closer to myself, get closer to God, uh, the storytelling arts. Uh, you know, are, are a central joy in my life, and I believe joy brings me closer to God. And the effect of watching a nude scene on me is not the same as it is on my friend. I mean, I first of all, I find beautiful women one of the great joys of life. You know, if you're going to cut the nudes out of the art, you're going to have to close down the Louvre because it's full of nudes. You know, I have beautiful women are one of the great joys of life. Oftentimes, I enjoy that. Uh, I have that joy in a fairly innocent fashion, sometimes not so innocent. But I have learned over the years that I'm not going to do the things that are really bad, like get addicted to pornography or cheat on my wife or any of those things. So I am taking the joy of this great story, Game of Thrones, which I do believe is a terrific story, one of the great stories of our age. And uh, it is giving me the joy and wisdom and bliss that I get from storytelling, which is part of my nature, part of who I'm supposed to be. So for me, watching Game of Thrones is a good thing. It is a positive thing. And, and so that's why I don't believe in the rules. Now, is, is it pornography? I don't think it actually is pornography because it is a story about characters. To me, I'll, I'll tell you something funny. Uh, pornography is inherently, it, it's inherently anti-art because it it dehumanizes sex. Okay, that that is the thing about pornography. When you see pornography, you know, you know, as one Supreme Court justice once said, you know it when you see it, and that's because it's anti-art. Art is about humanizing the world, uh, imposing God's values essentially on the world, telling the story of the world through the through the human heart, and. Pornography does exactly the opposite. It turns everybody into a piece of meat, into a peg fitting into a hole, and it really just you know plays to your flesh, basically. I think the most corrupting thing about Game of Thrones is that the author doesn't believe in God and he ties himself in knots excluding God from the story when God has a natural place in the story. Because there's all this religion that has power, but it keeps getting debunked, you know. And the one time that somebody speaks true religion, he's immediately wiped off the face of the earth in this very humiliating way, you know. And, and so 
And so I think that that is the most corrupting thing about it, that the logic of the story is being perverted by the author's opinion. And that is something, as an author, you try never to do. You try never to say, oh, I want this to have a happy ending, so I'm going to give it a happy ending, even though the story demands that the hero dies. You just don't do that. That is bad authoring. It is bad writing. And that is the one thing about Game of Thrones. That's my biggest criticism of it. So I hope that's, that's an answer. I mean, the thing is, you know who you're supposed to be. I hope you're reading the Bible. I hope you're talking to God every day and, and consulting with him and consulting with other books about that. And you know, you know what you should be doing, whether you're taking a step toward that person you're supposed to be or away. You know, it's written in your heart and in your brain. That is the new covenant. And so I can't give you rules for what you should watch. I can't give you rules for what you can do, should do except for those things. Uh, do those things. All right. Does that, does that make sense? I'm not going to send anybody off a cliff. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, here's, um, let's see, I've used up so much time here. Oh, oh, great and wise supreme leader Clavin, I am puzzled by a certain aspect of Christian theology. Christians believe that anyone who accepts Christ as his Lord and Savior goes to heaven. Uh, how does this make sense philosophically? If someone like Hitler would accept Christ, would he go to heaven? Sincerely, George. Um, you know, we had this hilarious conversation backstage once about whether Hitler Hitler com committed suicide, so could he go to, go to heaven because he killed Hitler? <laughs> Which actually is kind of a profound question, but it was very funny. Um, you know, first of all, that's that's a very simplistic notion of 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 heaven and whether you, how you go and all this. You know, it's a very mysterious thing. We know that we are saved by faith in Christ. We don't necessarily know how that works. We don't know who, uh, you know, is, is saved and how he's saved. We, we have faith and trust that, it, you know, if we have faith, we will be saved. Um, and, and, the, and the question of Hitler's inner life, we actually cannot judge. We cannot, the whole th the thing that we cannot judge is a person's relationship with God. Now with Hitler, yeah, can we make a safe guess? You know, I'm not expecting to see him, I'll be honest with you. But, but in all truth, getting to the most profound level, we cannot judge his relationship with God. And that is the only thing, the only thing we know about. It. How, what it is, you know, the thing about about Jesus is this so fascinating is that he wrong foots everybody you know when he comes into Jerusalem at the end and he's raised Lazarus from the dead and the people are cheering they're kind of it seems like they're kind of thinking oh you know he can raise the dead therefore he's going to get rid of the Romans and he's going to you know rebuild the temple and bring back the kingdom of David and all that stuff he doesn't do any of those things he doesn't do any of those things he completely wrong foots everybody and so it really seems that he's saying I'm not changing the way the world works I'm trying to tell you that it it can be seen in a different way because you know Jesus. This is this is incredible. Jesus says all these stuff, this stuff, and because it's Jesus, everybody kind of nods and looks holy and and like you know looks pious about it. He says, "Don't worry about money," you know, and everybody, ah, Jesus, don't worry, yes, don't worry about money. And I always think like, really. You know, <laughs> if I got two kids and they're in like private school and I'm a, a novelist, you know, it's like, like I shouldn't worry. Huh? You know, I mean, because it's, it's, that's a kind of complicated thing, you know, like he heals people and you think, well, what? You know, because that doesn't happen when he's not around, you know. Uh, so he's obviously seen a different world than we are. He's coming from a different place than we are and he's trying to get us to that place. And, and that is the salvation, I think, that he's bringing. But you got to think it through. You got to think, what does he see? that we don't see, you know, how does a guy walk on water? Why does he think if you can't walk on water, you don't have enough faith? It's really, it really are important questions. Um, one more, and then I'll stop. 
Um, Dear Great One and Love Guru Clavin, <laughs> this is from Spencer. I have noticed in the mailbag, woohoo, you have answered some romance questions, so here is mine. I am a 20-year-old Christian male who has never had a date of any kind. I am not someone you typically characterize like this because I'm not 400 pounds or a nerd who plays video games. Hey! Hey, leave the video games alone. Uh, I would say I am a fairly decent looking, uh, but have devoted all my time to baseball as a college athlete. I would like to get into the dating scene, but I am not really sure where to start. What would your advice be to me who would really like to enter dating? You know, I got to say, I mean, I've obviously I've been out of the dating game a long time, but um, I, I would have to say if I were dating today, I would go on a uh, Christian dating site. I would go on eHarmony or something like that. Um, is that is that a bad answer? I mean, yeah, you don't know because you guys haven't had a date in six months, right? That's like, <laughs> oh, you're married, so you're you're not allowed to. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, I, I think I would. You know, I think if you do it right and it's a reputable site, uh, eHarmony or something like that is a good place. It's people who are looking for permanent relationships, not looking for you know a hit and run. And I think uh, that would be like the safest way to do it in the old days in in my day you know people went to bars and it was awful and it was just it was just dreadful you know i mean they they would call it a meat rack and it was and uh and i think this is a way to get to know somebody and um get to know somebody well and and the other thing of course is go to places where people are and socialize i mean churches you go to church and you can socialize and and all that stuff so those would be my you know suggestions but i'm i've been out of the game a long time all right stuff i like we're talking about political movies and books and their reaction to them and the way you know it's really interesting the first one we talked about was 1984 because all these lefties are buying 1984 because they think donald trump has brought 1984 but they don't realize they are 1984 1984 is a takedown of the left it's a takedown of the left by a left winger but it is still a takedown of the left and when you read it and you see the way language is treated you see the way history is treated you see the way people are treated who don't agree the way they were treated for instance at middlebury college where there was a riot to stop a man from speaking and saying what speaking his opinion, you know, you see that 1984 is the left. There's more of 1984 in college campuses than there is in the Trump White House. The the one we did yesterday was not without my daughter, which I really like, and I think you I think you guys, if you've never seen it, you'll really enjoy it. It's just a really enjoyable film about the tyranny of Iranian Islamism, you know, it's, and that was just attacked as if it were racist to speak about how a philosophy affects people. This is one of, I think, the major movies of all time, Dr. Zhivago. Uh, I just think it is a wonderful, wonderful film by David Lean, the great uh, director, and by the great writer Robert Bolt, who wrote A Man for All Seasons. So a really uh, terrific team. It's got Omar Sharif when he was still uh, Omar Sharif before he, he took care of that. There's all these all these uh, actors, you know, they come in, they're absolutely good-looking, and then they start the drinking, and, they, you know, they lose it. Julie Christie, uh, a, a story of a man, a sweeping, epic story based on a novel by Boris Pasternak that had to be uh, smuggled out of the Soviet Union about the Russian Revolution. And it, it's, it's a wonderful story for a lot of reasons. Mostly it's a love story. But it's a wonderful story because it shows you that revolutions... You know, no matter how bad a revolution is, it doesn't pop up out of nothing. You know, I mean, it's not like, oh, the czars were great. You know, love those czars and here come the evil communists. That's not the way it worked. I mean, the, the thing is, and this is what I always remind conservatives, if you don't want to have a revolution, you know, you got to treat people fairly and make sure people are, are being served by the government. So here is a wonderful scene where Dr. Shivago, who is a, a famous 
poet, actually, uh, and he writes poets to his love, Lara. And he is brought in before a guy that he used to know who used to just be a kind of uh, schmo and now is the leader of the communists, one of the leaders of the communist revolution. And here is a wonderful scene where he, the leader of the communists, interviews Shivago. Are you the poet? Yes. I used to admire your poetry. Thank you. I shouldn't admire it now. I should find it absurdly personal. Don't you agree? Feelings, insights, affections, it's suddenly trivial now. You don't agree. You're wrong. The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. I can see how you might hate me. I hate everything you say, but not enough to kill you for it. You have a brother? Yevgraf? Yevgraf, yes, the policeman. I didn't know that. Perhaps not, a secret policeman. Did he send you here? Yevgraf? Oh, Yevgraf's a Bolshevik. I don't know anything about these things. Oh, you know a great deal. The critics uh, have never given this picture its due. It is a beautiful movie, a great love story, a great historical epic. They have never given it its due because it takes their heroes, the commies, and shows them for what they are. And, it, and it's a, a tragic story. It's not a, it's, not a, a, um, it's not a blanket condemnation. It shows you that this world had to go, this world of the czars had to go, but it just shows you what it was that replaced it. And the critics have been attacking it for years. They still attack it, and yet it is... Is a, an epic and a classic great film, Dr. Zhivago. All right, I got to go. I really ran over time, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. We will be back to wrap up the week tomorrow.